Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I am so happy to have you join us. Today, my guest is Karen Mountjoy. Karen and I dish about our time spent as members of the Clean Plate Club, the benefits of self-disclosure in client counseling, and our fondness of food freedom, especially when working with the younger population. Karen is a registered dietitian nutritionist based in New Hampshire who specializes in pediatric nutrition and uses both her dietetics degree and skills from being a special education teacher in helping parents and their children feel more comfortable and confident in establishing healthful food behaviors. I also want to take a moment to remind everyone that the purpose of this podcast is to entertain, educate, and inform, but it is not to be taken as medical advice. Please be sure to seek prompt, qualified medical care for any specific health condition and consult your physician or health practitioner before starting a new fitness regimen, herbal therapy, or other self-directed treatment. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome and good morning, Karen Mountjoy. I am so excited to be speaking with you today. Karen, you know, you and I do not have a history. Usually part of my first couple of questions with my guests are based on our personal experience together, but you were gracious enough to answer a call that I had sent out about um, asking people who wanted to be on my podcast. The, the thing that we do have in common, though, is that we are both registered dietitians. And so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit with our listeners about who you are, where you're at currently, and a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so I have a nonlinear uh, line to uh, dietetics. Um, in my previous life, I was a special education teacher. And I did that for 13 years. And then I stayed home and raised my own babies. And as I was uh, trying to figure out what to feed my own kids, I thought more and more about food and had always had a real interest in nutrition. Mm -hmm. And on somewhat of a whim, I decided to enter the dietetics program at my local college. And uh, so I did, so I, you know, I came to the field um, as a second career. And what I do right now is I literally blend those two fields of uh, special education and pediatric nutrition. And I specialize in kids with extreme picky eating. Right, which is a huge challenge. And we are going to definitely be incorporating that topic into our conversation today. But I wanted, I do want to go back a little bit further than in your own personal experience. So would you mind sharing with us, what are some of your earliest food memories of your own childhood? Where did you grow up? What was your family dynamic? What culture was in, you know, involved in how uh, you, your first food memories were? I'm so you. glad you asked that because, you know, that's a question that I ask my clients quite a <gasps> ah. bit. So one of my earliest memories, I'm going to preface this by saying that my dad um, uh, lived through the Great Depression mm -hmm. and that very much formed his life. And when we were kids, uh, we all had to belong to the Clean Plate Club. There was nothing more sinful than wasting food, right? My dad's a product of the Depression when they didn't have enough food. And so regardless of what was on your plate, regardless of um, whether you liked it or not, it didn't matter. It had to go into your belly. And one of my memories, my earliest memories is sitting in the dining room in the dark with a plate of cold peas in front of me. And I bring that to my clients. I, I share that story with my clients 
because I want them to know that that uh, that influenced me. Um, and so their experiences of growing up and how they were fed at their house is going to affect how they in- interact with their own kids. And what I do is I bring this back to the division of feeding responsibility, or sorry, the division of responsibility and feeding that mm-hmm. Ellen Satter um, brings to us around what's the care, the parent's role in feeding uh, and what's the kid's role. So um, I often use that, that um, story about me sitting in the dark, crying into this plate of yucky canned cold peas. <laughs> well, Oh my gosh, Karen, if I have mentioned in my own uh, history, a lot of times in this podcast that if it comes up naturally or if somebody else is also talking about that, their experience and it relates to mine as well. I have used that term plenty of times. I too came from a a clean plate household. My parents were immigrants. So Mm. much same, right. Similar kind of mentality Mm. of we came over with nothing and how dare you throw food away. And, um, you know, I often joke though, okay, fine. I get that. Like I'm all for not wasting food, but I'm six years old and you are giving me entirely too much pasta to eat or entirely too many lima beans. And, you know, for me to, at the time to develop my taste in things, it felt like I was being held hostage at the table. Mm. So I'm really glad to be talking about this because I do think a lot of my previous guests and also most likely some of my listeners too have that same memory of, of, being almost like shamed into not leaving because other you know kids are starving in wherever yep. across the world and we've also talked about here um the division of responsibility with mm-hmm. ellen satter too so i'll be sure to link that in the podcast notes too because that is a wonderful resource yeah um i just want to inquire too it, before we go into some some of the other influences you know this whole discussion about self-disclosure as a dietitian or as a healthcare provider there are sometimes pros and cons to that. I Mm. agree with you. I like sharing some of my challenges to make my clients feel more at ease. Mm. But then I also understand sometimes, you know, people might divulge a little too much and take over a session that there is a, um, a little bit of a fine line there. Sure. So is it, is it fair to assume, like, do most of your clients appreciate the fact that you're talking to them on their level and that you also have gone through some challenges and it, it makes it feel like a mutually beneficial relationship that they can open up to you even more so? Absolutely. 90% of my clients are brought to uh, me by their mother. Usually mm-hmm. it's the mom who's reaching out to me because we're dealing with a kiddo who's struggling with... Um, well, like I said, extreme picky eating, or I see kids for a variety of other reasons. And sometimes uh, moms get emotional. They will get um, uh, very teary-eyed. And um, sometimes, you know, I'm passing the tissues to them because this, um, this idea of I'm the mom, I should be able to get my kid to eat. Right. Um, Relating to those uh, parents, parent to parent, mom to mom, um, I really think brings the relationship closer. It's actually one of the things I really like about nutritional counseling. Um, When I worked, when I did my clinical rotations during my internship, I really did love working in the hospital, but I always was disappointed when somebody got discharged because I wouldn't see them again. Right. And that's what I love about nutrition counseling is I get to get to know somebody, get to know a family um, pretty well. 
And so I think sharing a little bit about myself and my experiences as a mom feeding my young kids or my experiences uh, being a kid myself, I think that brings, um, it makes people feel a little safer about sharing what's really hard for them. Right. And I think this really, you have a very challenging position as in the pediatric, um, you know, specialty there because your patient might, or your client might not be old enough to even talk to you about certain Mm -hmm. things and also not even old enough to be in charge or in control of Mm -hmm. their food intake. So you really are working with two different people in two different life stages And like the fact that you said the mom or the parent being, you know, emotional, that definitely is understandable because you're thinking, oh my gosh, my kid's not eating or they're getting sick or I'm starving them. So it's almost like you're, you're working in a behavioral setting with two different mindsets in that. And I think that's something why I think uh, I mentioned to you in the beginning of our conversation, the fact that, you know, I work with a lot of dietetic interns, a lot of students in the nutrition field. We don't really get well, we don't get a lot of things. We don't get a lot of specialty mm. views in the pediatric setting. Mm. It's just not part of our rotations sometimes. But we also don't get a lot of experience and guidance, even in the academic uh, programs, where we learn about behavioral things. Like we might learn about the theories and changes and you know how to motivationally interview people. But I think it really takes a lot of time and effort and experience to get to where you are. Can you speak a little bit about that too? Absolutely. So in my, uh, I use every day in the work that I do with families. So I feel really fortunate actually to have the two degrees, to have all this experience, these 10 plus years as a special education um, teacher. It was not just about getting a kiddo to, um, you know, memorize their math facts. A lot of the families we worked with um, had complicating factors. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that is the case in some of the uh, work that I do now. I feel like I have a broader, a a much broader picture of families when they come see me. Um, Someone might call me up and say, my child has a dairy allergy. I'd like to talk to you about altering their diet to accommodate that. And then as we dig in a little deeper, I find out other information where I almost have to take a couple of steps back and look at the picture in a bigger way so that it's not just about the dairy allergy. It's about the, um, the other factors that make mm-hmm. eating challenging for that kid. And that's, I think that is the challenge just generally speaking with anything is that there's so many different factors to take into, not just mindset, behavior, experience, socioeconomic factors, environmental things, mm-hmm. accessibility. So, you know, when we talk about, I teach life cycle nutrition. And when we talk about the pediatric section of our discussion that spans quite a large range. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's usually like zero to 20 years old based on the growth charts and so on. So do you have a specific or a typical, uh, you know, chunk of that population that you see more often, or is it quite a large range? And, you know, we'll talk a little bit too about like allergies and and also like the subspecialties within pediatrics. Yeah, I do say that I see kiddos from birth until sort of early college years you know, 20, mm-hmm. 21, 22, if, if you're, if you're still in college and, and you're 
still somewhat connected to your parents um, in that way, I'll, I'll see kiddos that old. But mm-hmm. um, I would say it's very typical to see um, toddlers, preschoolers into early um, elementary ages. So let's say two to five or six. Um, that's when okay. parents come to me with their picky eating concerns. Sometimes, uh, so, so my goal, of course, is to figure out why might they be picky? Is this, um, is this as straightforward as, you know, parents needing some structure in the household so that there's actual times that kids are fed, you know, meals and snacks, Mm -hmm. um, on a schedule, um, or is there something else going on? Is there a, are, are, have, are they working with an occupational therapist on sensory issues? Um, I do see, I do see kids who, uh, ultimately we find out they have a tongue tie or something else like that. The older kids who come to me, um, I'd say 10 plus those parents generally have worries around their children's um, weight, underweight, Mm -hmm. mostly overweight. And the request I get is, um, please help me teach my kid healthy snacking and Mm -hmm. portion control. And I'm going to refer back to Ellen Satter because that's that really very much guides the work that I do, that division of responsibility. And so for those families, I usually start there. I usually start with this is, this is the framework for, for how I, you know, I, I, I move forward with families. And we talk about what parents should and should not be doing around kiddos' weight. The mm-hmm. older teenagers who come to me are usually very self-motivated. They're very motivated to make some sort of change around whatever their concern is. And I do see, um, I do see some older teenagers who have some picky eating, or they describe themselves as being really picky eaters. And I realize this is something they've been dealing with for like the last 15 or 16 or 17 years. And I'm kind of actually impressed that they've gotten to where they are, you know, in such a successful way. If those, if those teenagers really want to make a change, that's, that's actually quite awesome because they're more in charge of their food and, and, uh, and how they eat. There is a lot to unpack here. As, as my listeners know, I scribble a bazillion notes when I'm listening and yeah. interviewing people. And so I'm, I'm going to try and put this in like age order. So one of the first things I recently came across and one of my interns and I were working on, and I think because recently the dietary guidelines for Americans mm-hmm. had been revised, that we, we talk a lot about, and I discussed this in my classes too, we talk a lot about food allergies, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that um, a very small percentage, at least that we know, are legitimately diagnosed with a food allergy at the very early age, like infants. And so we have this discussion about early introduction of food allergens. Mm-hmm. But then we also have this opposite side where everybody's very fearful of you know, exacerbating that particular issue. And so our school systems are peanut free. Mm-hmm. So how has that come up in 
also you maybe putting people at ease. Like there is a way to introduce things without knowing you know, or without feeling like you're going to, you know, make your child have some sort of um, outbreak or anaphylactic reaction. Is that something that you also address too? Or are you coming from a known food allergy state when you're meeting with somebody and giving them more guidance and like, you know, what, what they have to work around. When I talk to families, uh, parents who are uh, just beginning to introduce solid foods to their infant, mm-hmm. you know, six, seven, eight months, we talk about the fact that um, early introduction is is preferable to to waiting, and um, as long as the child doesn't have any. Usually, it's around peanuts. Parents are right. very fearful around peanuts. Right. So as long as there are no other allergens or uh, known allergens and no other and and no parent directly also has known allergies, I tell those parents to go ahead and introduce peanuts sooner than later. I also let parents know there's a way to do it that can be a little less scary. So the next time your kiddo is going into the doctor's office for a well child check or for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, you could introduce it there in the doctor's office if you're worried. You would want to ask them first. Right. So it's being monitored. Right. Like live session. Right. Or, and, or I also recommend that they have a little liquid Benadryl on hand. So if you give your kiddo a little bit of peanuts, uh, peanut butter, and you notice maybe they're, um, breaking into, you know, a little rash on their cheeks or something, give them, Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll want to call your primary care straight away, get a dose of that Benadryl, but it's going to, um, it's going to give you a little peace of mind. Now, if you have, if your child has a known allergy, you're going to wait, you're going to wait for advice from your pediatric allergist. And the same case, if you have allergies yourself, getting people to understand that that the that sooner is better than later because that also goes the, what is that the hygiene hypothesis where like if we're completely avoiding all potential contaminants it's almost sometimes doing more harm than good because that's then right. we're not building up that immune system that's right and so that that can be quite challenging so like if i have a peanut allergy or if i'm allergic to dairy or fish or whatever and i purposely don't have that in my house then my family is also not going to necessarily be able to consume that and especially at an early age i'm not introducing that to my child mm. but there can be ways around that like you said like i can you know purposely depending on how sensitive my allergy might be, you know, if it's airborne, it's a different story. But when we're talking about introduction, it's a very small amount. We're not talking like, you know, a scoop. We're talking like a quarter of a teaspoon of something just to be conscientious. And is it true too, that there are early signs anyway, that even if you haven't necessarily gotten your child's diagnosis, you can tell sometimes like skin eczema appearance, like you said, some breakouts and so on that, that might give you an indication that there could be some allergies happening. Right. So if, if that's the case, then you should definitely check in with your primary care for pediatrician. Right. That's, that's great advice. Okay. So then now as we go into the older teens or, you know, children who now maybe can have an allowance and purchase food on their own, I love that they're coming to you with, you know, questions and wanting to perhaps improve their dietary habits because that, 
gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't have children of my own, but boy, howdy, do I walk around trying to encourage everybody to, you know, have food freedom, but also just know whatever they're doing now can uh, positively or negatively influence the future them. So, you know, you don't have to be super strict with all of your, uh, your food habits, but, you know, just know whatever habits you start now. And so, of course, in my mind, the stereotypical kid is going to the fast food joint mm-hmm. and loading up on all these sodas and things and their metabolism is fantastic so they're not maybe paying attention to stuff like that um or even their gi is you know a little bit uh more able than somebody like me who i have i have a quarter of teaspoon of something and i'm out the door yeah i can't deal with that so is there some sort of dynamic happening like are they talking about this in their school in their groups and you know in their like cliques and their own peer groups or is this something that they're looking from you know i'm noticing my parents don't eat well or i'm noticing that i have a history of something disease in my family that my you know so and so just passed away from something and i'm getting nervous what is the instigator i guess in that way uh i'm if there is one i'm really glad you brought up parents because i want to say that very often parents ask me to talk to their kid about nutrition or to give them some nutrition mm-hmm. counseling. And the parents say, they won't listen to me. They need to right. listen to somebody else. So I remind parents, their actions actually are watched, whether you think your teenager is watching you or not. What you yeah. do, they're taking notice. So what's fascinating to me is the number of times Parents say, I really want my kid to eat better. We do lots of chatting. We kind of drill down and it comes down to they want their kids to eat more vegetables. And what I find is that the parents aren't eating vegetables themselves. They're not right. serving vegetables. They're, you know, there's, there's just sort of this limited menu in the house. And that's one of the things I remind parents of. Look, you have more influence than you think you do. And mm-hmm. I'm going to go back to little kids as we're, uh, you know, raising our children and we're um, feeding them in a certain way and we're giving them lots of food choices. All of the good hard work that you have done in those early years sort of goes to the breakdown lane, if you will, uh, when kids mm-hmm. are teenagers. Because what's most important to teenagers? Their friends. And if their friends, are uh, gathering around, um, you know, uh, a fast food restaurant, then that's what they're going to eat, right? They don't want to be eating cucumbers if their friends are eating French fries. (laughs) Um, Right. And so what's interesting to me is there's there's this chunk of time, this blip of time where teenagers are eating really just a gut busting, um, you know, diet. And yeah, however, all that hard work you put in when the kids were little, they will, they will circle back to that. And I will say, I have noticed that myself with my two oldest kids who are 22 and almost 19, they Mm -hmm. ate a mind blowing amount of what I considered unhealthy food as teenagers. And now they are, they're coming back full circle. My oldest is really into meal prepping, right? He'll call me, he'll call me on a Sunday and mom, I'm doing this. How do I cook the chicken? And, you know, and I love that. I love that. I'm not saying that we need to let teenagers just go 
full gangbusters, you know, off right. the rails. But recognize that that's part, that's part of the socialness, the social yeah. beast of a teenager. You, well, first of all, you just gave me chills because anytime <laughs> I hear anyone wanting to meal prep, I'm so excited. And, you know, I often say to people, too, meal prepping doesn't have to be start to finish chopping, slicing, dicing, right. spending 15 hours in the kitchen, washing dishes. It could easily just be, you know, making some more conscientious choices, buying heat and eat items that are a little bit healthier for you or nu- more nutritionally sound than, say, some more highly processed things, allowing yourself the flexibility to have pizza night or takeout or leftovers or whatever. It doesn't have to, there's no real definition, but it helps with having control in your intake. So I really love that, that this is, you know, of course, I would hope that a child of a dietitian would do that, but also I recognize, you know, uh, the whole thing do as I say, not as (laughs) I do sometimes (laughs) happens in there. And so that brings me to not just about the food as example and, you know, the, the parent and setting the tone in the home in that way of what is available on the table, the division of responsibility for anyone who doesn't know is, is basically that, like just have things accessible for your child to eat and try and sample. Like you are only there to provide and the child can then determine what they like, what they don't like, what they want to try and eat, spit out, etc. But I also want to talk a little bit about the wording too. So are you also asking questions or having some sort sometimes like uncomfortable but necessary discussions with parents as well about you know how they speak to their child about using words that are negative or like let's not be bad or you shouldn't eat that you're going to get fat you know things like that because as a child you're hearing this and then when you're 47 years old you're also hearing that in your head so tell us a little bit about that too how that might you know play a role and also what your role is absolutely so uh the younger the child the more I talk with parents, right? Mm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a two-year-old as an example. Um, two-year-old's favorite word is new. So <laughs> anyone who has been around toddlers knows that. So, but if you're a mom and you're in the thick of it, you're in the trenches every day with your kiddo, the question isn't, what would you like for lunch? Mm-hmm. Um, would you like this for lunch? I have mm-hmm. parents flip their language to be a little more directive. It's time for lunch. We're having ham sandwiches. I don't know. I just made that up. Right. 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 So you're not asking, you're not asking your two-year-old, would you like a ham sandwich? You're saying it's time for, and, and popping them at the table and getting underway. If you ask a two-year-old mm-hmm. a question, 100% of the time you're going to get the answer <laughs> no. No. So, that, so that's <laughs> sort of one thing. But um, as kids get older, and it's primarily parents who come to me with concerns about their child's weight. Um, after a, a conversation with the child and the parent, if I notice the parent is uh, being um, blunt and negative about their child's weight or making mm-hmm. comments about what they're eating or, and I would say that that happens most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. Here's the thing that I really want parents to know. I know you have come to me with nothing but love for your child yeah. in your heart. I know that. And in that vein, I know you are trying to help. You are trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. What I will say to you is 
I, I'll, you know, I'll jokingly say to the kiddo, oh, I'm kicking you out, you know, back in the olden days of, you know, January 2020, when kids used to come to my <laughs> office, you know, <laughs> I would, you know, I have toys in my office and I'd send them off. And, and if they were older kids, I'd send them out to the reception yeah. area with, um, you know, coloring things and whatever. And, um, yeah, but, you know, I have, you know, a little heart to heart with parents. And I let them know that one of the most damaging things they can do is comment on their child's weight. Yeah. It is very, very damaging. And we have a conversation about why that is. And this is one of the times when I also ask parents, tell me about your journey with weight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It helps them if they've been shamed growing up about their weight, of course, they want very much to avoid that with their own kids. And they're not connecting the dots that they're participating in shaming their own kid. So mm -hmm. we talk about what you can do and what you cannot do. And a lot of times I say to them, this is the hardest thing you're going to have to do as a parent, but I want you to zip it. I want you to stop talking about your child's right. weight and about right. their food on their plate. And quite often it's when I need to have um, multiple caregivers in my office or now on a zoom where I say, you guys have to be on the same page. You have to be on the same page. One of you, can't be commenting on food and the other one not like you have to stop you're right right one sneaking like yeah. m&ms under the table yeah. and right and the other one's like being super yeah. restrictive i call right. it um I, you know i say look the kids go to bed or if they're older you guys go to bed yourself and you have what, what i call a parenting summit and you sit down mm -hmm. and you hash it out and you talk about getting on the same page philosophically and you figure out a script, it's so much easier when you have a phrase or two that you can just repeat and remove yourself from um, those power. It's, it's a power struggle. It's a battle about winning, really. So you have a 13-year-old right. who's carrying extra weight on his body. Parent comments about how many pancakes are on his plate. That mm -hmm. teenager's probably going to feel some shame about that and right and shame makes you you know possibly eat more right develop some sort of eating disorder whether it's an excess or restriction like no good is going to come out of that if you're pointing things out and i think going back to um, I don't know how your family was, but going back to uh, the early childhood for me and the clean plate club and all that stuff, I, I did feel very shame sometimes. I mean, I've had conversations with my parents since that, but it has played a role where I, you know, I've been so adamant where I will never talk to somebody like that. I will never make somebody feel so bad about that. Um, is, is that the language that was also used in your home too? Not so much of like the food waste, but, you know, at a young age of having to place all this responsibility on these outcomes that you're like, dude, I'm five. I honestly don't remember any of that. Um, oh, good. Yeah. Okay, good. I, I don't good. remember any of that. I will say that as I 
as a, a young kid, um, my nickname was string bean and, oh. <laughs> and the, and the, um, you know, advice from the school nurse every year when they weighed you, weighed and measured you in the fall. Yeah. God, why, mm-hmm. why do school nurse, why did they have right. to do that? I don't understand. And of course this was back in the days where pre HIPAA and everybody knew what you weighed. Um, and the school right. nurse would say to me every fall, you should drink a chocolate shake every day. And, um, and I do remember among my friends that being somewhat of a joke in a very kind way, but there were friends that I had who were overweight and mm-hmm. there, you know, and they felt a lot of shame around stepping on that scale at school. Um, I, yeah, right. I'm still, not, I'm not sure why we're still doing that. Well, you know, I, I realized that this can go off into a whole part too, as I've said with a lot of my guests as well, I might end up just selecting one season of my podcast and just bringing everyone back for a second sure. round of discussions. But, but I wanted to find out your take on how much weight do we place on weight? Because in the past couple of years that I've been, I've only been a dietitian for four years. And in the past few years that I've also been teaching, we've seen a lot of things like Weight Watchers go through different um, mm. transitions to kind of be more like lifestyle friendly. And, you know, they're just using different words, but mm. are still putting people on diets. And then they also came out with Kerbo at the time was for children. And they got yes, a lot I remember of flack that. from dietitians. Yeah. Remember where they were posting like before and after pictures, like, look at little Jessica losing 20 28 pounds. And I'm like, she's seven years old. She's going to grow up and grow out of certain things. And even if she doesn't like, that doesn't mean that she's healthy because she's skinny. So, and also now too, with, if I'm not mistaken, like the age uh, through the American Academy of Pediatrics for bariatric Mm -hmm. surgery for children is like 12 or something. So can you talk a little bit about like how, how far does it have to happen where we do have to be a little conscientious about the actual, you know, body composition of a child versus the kids growing, relax. Maybe this is just their body type. Definitely. Those are conversations I have with families. So it, Mm -hmm. it, sometimes it's better received than others. If, uh, so if sure. I talk to a family about the division of responsibility in feeding and getting a parent to be comfortable and confident, that parent needs to be comfortable and confident that they know that they're feeding their child in the, in correctly. They have to know that they are okay. And when they know that, then their child's body is going to grow just the way that it grows. Sometimes right. the misunderstanding comes from the part where we talk about what uh, kids get to eat as much or as little as they'd like, right? Where mm-hmm. the parent says, well, wait a second. I put a dozen donuts on the table. That kid's going to eat a dozen donuts. And my response is, well, you don't put a dozen donuts on the table, right? Like, right, right, that. exactly. That's yeah. extreme. Right? Um, so, uh, you know, that's not that's not the division of responsibility. The division of responsibility doesn't say it's a free for all mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. But if donuts are on the menu for breakfast or whenever, maybe it's lunch. Who knows? If donuts are on the menu, then they're on the menu. And your overweight mm-hmm. kid or your kid who's carrying extra body weight gets to have a donut 
just like your slender child gets to have a donut. Right. Right. Some parents are more. Oh, this is making <laughs> me cry. A little bit. It's really because I'm picturing both yeah. of these children and how one is treated much different because just our stigma of what a, an ideal body sure. shape looks like, at least in America. Sure is that really plays such a huge role. And, um, and, you know, for that child to come out of it feeling less than makes me so heartbroken. I don't ever want to see that, but yet it's not their fault. It's, you know, the, the environment in which they're growing up. So I love that you are infiltrating yeah. in that way I, and, you know, and shining lights on that, things. That it, this has, this work that I, that I'm doing has very much, um, I don't want to say changed over the last five or six years, but I guess I want to say right. uh, I've ad not adapted. I'm not sure of the word. I'm not, I'm not really uh, sure of the word that I'm looking for, but I've grown, I suppose. And I mm -hmm. let families know straight up front when you come see me that I'm a weight neutral dietitian. I'm an all foods mm -hmm. fits kind of dietitian and I will not right. put your child on a diet. If you are right. bringing a six year old to me, and you want me to put your child on a diet, I'm going to refer you to somebody else. Right. It feels unethical for those of us who are not taking yeah. that approach in, in doing that. Right. I, I agree. I agree. Karen, I want to, as we're coming up towards the end of our conversation together, I want to shift for one second about some of your non-office things that you do. I believe you mentioned in our pre-interview discussions that you also did some volunteering with Gathers Pantry Market and News yeah. for Kids. Is that still happening Ab even in pandemic life? Uh, just about every Tuesday, I drive, oh, I don't know, about half an hour from here. Um, Gather is an anti-hunger uh, food organization that's here in the town where I live. And they have me uh, mobile markets, meals for kids uh, programs in about nine different towns. And what they do is they mm. come uh, um, at the market here in my town, they load up trucks and then we go to various locations, unload the trucks on tables um, and uh, people who need food, whether they're first time visitors or they're weekly visitors um, can shop for what they need. So far, sort of farmer's market style. Um, so right. lots of pantry items, tons and tons of fresh fruits and vegetables, milk, eggs, and meat. And um, it's something that I have been doing for years. And when the pandemic hit last March, we kind of hit the ground running and we're continuing to do it. Mm -hmm. They've had to cancel a couple of times over the last month due to weather. But they try really hard not to do right. that because some of the towns um, that we're uh, that gather is, uh, uh, you know, driving to those are hard hit towns that need that need us. So um, it's something that. Right. I feel really strongly about and I uh, feel really connected to the, to the organization and it, it informs the work that I do as a dietitian too. I am, mm -hmm. I've always got that in my, I've, I've got people's food budget in mind when we talk about recommendations and you know, what I think, you know, would be a, a good thing to do next for your kid. I'm not going to um, recommend, you know, a, a specialty item that right. is going to be very expensive. I was just going to say, I think this is something that I, I tend to find myself saying over and over again, don't worry so much about 
what's organic, what's conventional, what's fresh, what's frozen. Do we have access to food? Like, let's just make sure people are eating. So I really appreciate that, that not only is it budget friendly, but it's also, you know, community specific, seasonal foods, you know, whatever it is that you're collecting and, and being able to share that that alone plays such a role in just hunger and, you know, satisfaction and nutrition and health. So, you know, let's focus as just a general population of making sure that we all have enough food before we start picking and choosing of what's quote unquote good and bad within that. That's very true. Thank you. So Karen, I have a question on behalf of some of my listeners who I know, as I said before, are very interested in pediatrics. What are some of perhaps your go-to resources if somebody out there who wants to uh, look more into specializing in pediatrics when they become a dietitian or have, you know, even on the, um, the, the business to consumer end of things of like, you know, a patient who has a child who's a picky eater, aside from Ellen Satter, is there anything else that you are usually your go-to resources that might be a little bit more, um, you know, general public friendly, and then maybe also some scientific things like more on our like textbook level, what you might recommend oh, if there is boy. anything. You can find actually my plate is my plate yes. is really another yes. great resource. I know that sometimes uh, there's a little um, feeling like it's it's too simplistic, but I think it's a great place to sure. start, particularly if you have young kids who like to chart things. Right? They have charts where you can say yes. you can say, "Oh, it's my goal this week to eat," you know, two red fruits and two green vegetables or something, and you can pop that on your fridge and give yourself a gold star whenever you do that. Sometimes that can be um, right. really uh, motivating for families. Um, right. You know, Facebook, again, another love-hate relationship with Facebook. But if you were to go to Facebook and Google, um, or not Google, sorry, search for, <laughs> search for um, pediatric dietitians, you, you could find several there who are worth following and looking into um right as far as and of course aside from you and your own um website and you know things that are there too you're right i'm starting as you're saying that i'm starting to think also not that instagram is great as as a search engine but if you do enter certain keywords a lot of people have the words you know pediatric yeah. nutritionist or pediatric dietitian in their yeah. in their handle and so that's also something you'll find people's websites and those are the people who you know we trust a little bit more than just like a random mommy right. blog no offense to right. mommies and blogs right understood understood i find that very helpful too i mean i always say uh, yes make sure that you're you know you're asking people's credentials you don't want like just because it happened to you or i should say just because somebody had success in whatever they did with their own personal life doesn't necessarily qualify them to pass along that information to others and so you know everybody works in uh, an individualized approach but i also like what you said about the myplate so that's myplate.gov and you can look up you know myplate.gov for children and i'm going to link that here as well because much like a lot of what we do in the dietetics field we utilize imperfect but good enough like tools to help with guiding the discussion but then we customize our approaches much like karen was saying before of you know the the especially in that life cycle stage where it can span 20 years like where are they at right now what is their current uh factors you know as taking into consideration their behaviors and so on so but that's nice that's nice to have some tools there that they also, can do activities don't, oh, and things like that tell you about a really great resource but don't underestimate yeah. the power of cooking with your kids 
get yes leading by example get them in the kitchen kitchen. um if you go to my sorry i feel like i'm self-promoting here if you go to my website you will actually find some really great cookbooks that i recommend and also um uh kitchen tools that are good to use with kids one of my absolute hands down favorite resources ever is chop chop magazine and Chop Chop Magazine uh, is now, I think, called Chop Chop Family. And it is a magazine that comes to your mailbox every month. And it has fun cooking um, recipes for uh, kids. I think, it's, I think it's geared toward ages 2 to 12. And um, I often suggest it to families with young kids because we don't get mail anymore, do we? Right? Like, how mm-hmm. fun is it just to get exactly. mail? And this, right, to and open this magazine <laughs> is just amazing. So um, a couple of years ago, they were doing uh, a promotion where if you bought the ma- a magazine subscription, you got a free um, apron. And so all my nieces and nephews mm. that winter, that's what they got. That's what they got for Christmas uh, present. They all got a subscription to Chop Chop with their own little aprons. Oh, that is Great. See, that's a great idea too. So if you know of somebody, maybe you feel a little awkward pointing something out to a family member that you are aware of, much like you were saying to before Karen about how like, they don't listen to me. I'm a family. That could be a fun thing. Why don't you get them a magazine subscription and, uh, and maybe they look into that and start going, that was kind of cool. I'm on the website right now. I tend to do this while I'm talking live to people. I look things up. What an adorable, I'm going to put this in the notes too, for the podcast. What an adorable website. There's a lot of actual live action things going on here too. So you're watching the kids like tasting an olive and going into, they're doing like the, um, the smoothie shake making from the bicycle, like you can pedal oh and make God. the blender whirl. So like a lot of cute little things. Do is, I believe on that website, you can find little cooking demonstrations. So you can do, right. so what could have been last summer, I think they had like a whole series. So like every once a week or once a month, you would get a, um, a video it would come straight to your, your inbox and you could yes. cook along yes. with, you know, uh, whatever they were making on the video. So Chop Chop, I'd say I suggest to just about every single family that I work with. And um, they also have a a new product uh, called the Eatable Alphabet, which is a deck of cards that each card has uh, Mm. a food on the front and on the back, there's a recipe that's associated. Just fantastic. Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, because we often find sometimes, in, in, especially in certain underserved communities, children don't even know what broccoli looks like or tastes like. And so what a wonderful way to in, incorporate, much like we were saying earlier, too, like, we, you know, you have certain specialties, but then um, you're marrying them, having your profession in special ed and now also in pediatrics. But now also people can marry together teaching of the alphabet and visual representation and then also say, look, let's create something out of this recipe or this particular ingredient. I am in love with, I'm so glad you, you remembered this because I'm quite literally obsessed you, with this right now. Like I'm clicking on things. I'm on their Instagram page. I'm so, this it's is so really vibrant cool. and, and colorful. So here's my final, yeah. uh, sort of, uh, pitch for cooking together. I don't really care what you're cooking together. Yeah. I think that it's also important yeah. that you don't, um, lean too heavily on the fact that it's healthy or whatever. Um, 
cooking with your right. kids is such a bonding experience. It's so, if you think about, so I grew up cooking cookies with my mom. My mom is a cookie cooker. And guess right. what? I cook cookies. There's right. no recipe that's too complicated. If there's a cookie on the other end, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm at it. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, and so right. I have that connection with my mom, right? We'll, we bake cookies together. And so cook, cooking and baking with your kid is just so connecting. If you have, yeah. if you have yeah. um, a heritage or a culture where you can share recipes from one generation to another, that's really important. Eating mm-hmm. is not about you know, getting nutrients in you. Yes, but eating really is connecting with other people. So mm-hmm. I'm all about that. But it's such an, an enjoyable experience. I mean, it could even be as simple as just help mom in the kitchen or whoever's in the kitchen uh, chopping up carrots or something, you know, just getting the feel of smell and taste. Oh, you want a little sample of this? And, you know, as you're creating even the most mundane of, of recipes, it doesn't have to be outlandish, but it could just be an enjoyable experience to taste different flavors, smell different things, comment on stuff, and then spend quality time with each other too. I love, love, You're love welcome. that visual. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. So as um, I am going to be wrapping up, I just want to double check with you. Is there anything that we haven't yet covered that I didn't ask that we might have left out of this conversation? Any final messages you want to relate to our listeners today? That is today? such a big question. I think I would encourage anybody who has questions about anything really is to reach out to a registered dietitian who can help you. I mean, your insurance, Mm -hmm. your health insurance, for the most part, would probably cover a consult with a with a dietitian. So if that benefit is available in your um, in your health insurance, why not? That's so wonderful. Thank you so much, Karen. Uh, before we go, my final part, two-part question, uh, <laughs> pun intended, is what is on your plate today? So we are currently recording on a weekday morning-ish. It's a little bit later in the morning now that we're wrapping up. And uh, so is there anything on your plate as far as work is concerned? Are you seeing clients, patients, et cetera? And then also, what would your next meal oh, be? God, what that's are you great. eating next? So yes, I do have more clients lined up today. And I'm also doing a little webinar about tube feeding. So um, yeah, I, I, I do tube ah, feed manages, okay. uh, manage tube feeds as well. So, um, and what's on my... Uh, lunch today you um you caught me i'm having my current obsession which is a spinach salad with all kinds of veggies um and pistachios Mm. i'm not sure what pistachios are doing for me these days but just about every day for the last two weeks i've had this spinach salad whatever veggies i could find in my fridge and i put pistachios on it I feel like that something like that, even if you're not a pistachio fan, but any kind of nuts or seeds sprinkled on something, it adds texture, a nice healthy fat in there, some plant-based protein. When I, um, I try to, um, I try to front load my day, right? I try to front load lots of veggies at lunchtime. So if I'm to get tired at the end of the day and I have a slice of toast for dinner, (laughs) I feel, I feel a little bit better about what, you know, I've balanced my day already. Well, Karen, this has been a true pleasure. I hope that you had a wonderful first experience. I uh, did. You made it easy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, 
registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina, and I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again. Dish again.